Welcome to Beyond the Roadmap, Product Talk with AWH, a podcast for product people, by product people. Join us as experts share their experiences and expertise to help you build great products. This is Ryan Frederick with AWH, and this is Beyond the Roadmap, a podcast about building software products. And today I've got with me, uh, I'm just going to refer to him as uh, Super, and then I will let him dig in and tell you more about himself. But I've known Super for a while, met Super as part of the startup community in Columbus when he was the founder of, of a startup here. And he's moved on and, and done a couple of, of additional things um, and now is in a, a recently new position around product as well. So I wanted to get together with Super and talk about really the transitions from being a founder, working on your own product, and then working with inside of a larger company with a more mature product, and then in a fast-growing company with also a, a fast-growing and quickly evolving product. So Super, good to talk to you. Thanks for taking the time to... Uh, sit down here remotely during every, all the craziness with the virus to uh, uh, rant about product for a few minutes. Yeah, sounds great, Ryan. Yeah, thanks for having me. We made we made it happen. Yeah, I'm super currently product manager at Upstart, super sauna, but everyone calls me super. So I think you nailed, nailed it on the intro there, Ryan. Awesome. So let's start to, to dig into it. As I said, you were the founder. And when we met, you were the founder of a, of a startup that had an interesting product and maybe, you know, timing was just not right and, you know, other things. I mean, there's more ways for these things to, to go wrong than there is for them to go right. And then you joined Buffer in product and now you're at Upstart, as you said, in product. As you think about those transitions, how would you characterize your view of product from it being your own product to a little bit more mature product to now a very you know, fast evolving product? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that first, I didn't know that I was really focusing on quote unquote product when we were kind of doing um, cap story startup days. So at the time, it was basically me and uh, my co-founder Dustin, where we essentially just had an idea for something that we wanted to build. And uh, as we started creating that, talking to people who would use it, pivoting over you know a number of years to different markets, growing that, only in hindsight did I really realize that that is product management to some extent. Um, and the work that I enjoyed the most out of all that was what could be broadly defined under product management. So it was only kind of looking back at that that I realized that. So going through that experience with Cap Story at sort of the tail end of that, took a few months off where I was feeling pretty burned out, I think, at that point. And it was great to just totally do almost nothing for a couple months and just think about what I want to do next. And at the time, I think uh, I had grand visions of learning how to code pretty advanced and uh, doing design workshops and all this. And I basically ended up doing nothing for, for that time period. And then as I was thinking about what my next role would be and just talking to other founders in town or other companies that were looking to hire, it sort of started getting clearer and clearer that product management was sort of the role that bundled up all the parts that I enjoyed doing, which was talking to the actual end customer, sort of working on this mystery of what they're saying they want versus what would actually solve their problems. And then coming back sort of into the office and then chatting with design, engineering, et cetera, and saying, okay, how do we build something that we could give to them and see if it works out? And that's sort of what led me to Buffer and applying there. I think what sort of, to your original question about how view of product sort of evolved over that time, I think 
Buffer is great to sort of get a little bit more definition and discipline around how I approach product. Uh, I learned a lot there around just some of the more tactical aspects of writing product specs, conducting really strong customer interviews. We had a customer researcher there that was really, really amazing who walked me through a lot of different customer interviews where I got to just sit there and listen and hear how he handled the situations, how he asked questions, and then eventually doing them myself. And the interesting thing about Buffer was because we had you know just tens of thousands of customers, it was really easy to sort of get on three, four, five calls a week with just a random sampling of people. So I got a lot of reps in of doing those customer interviews and getting better at asking questions, getting better at figuring out how to validate assumptions and all that. And as you mentioned, joined Upstart recently here at the start of, of 2020. And so far, I think one of the biggest things that I've gained here or learned is just the complexity that goes up at larger organizations. Um, seems obvious on the face of it, but the impact that has on the day-to-day, I think, is pretty huge. And it's been very cool to work with leaders here at Upstart that have been through that at many other companies like Amazon or even just growing here at Upstart over the, the last seven, eight years. And understanding the differences of how you approach everything from writing a spec to getting something out the door, there's just a lot more people that need to be involved to make sure that the end result is is what the company wants. You mentioned as part of your buffer experience, the relatively easy access to, to customers and users to you know, talk about different aspects of the product and maybe some, some enhancements and evolutions to the product that you guys were, were making and exploring. That is a very, one, it's a nice situation to have to be able to be able to tap into that many customers and users and to have at least enough of them be willing to engage in those conversations. Yep. That's where a lot of, a lot of product teams and companies seem to struggle is getting and staying close to customers and users and, and iterating you know, closely with them. How important and valuable do you think that is now that you've gone through the you know, the evolutions of doing your own product to the buffer than upstart because the getting close to and iterating with customers part still seems to be a, a significant challenge for most companies. Yeah, I think there's no doubt about it. It was definitely a huge advantage that we had to be able to have that many customers already using the product that you could reach out to at any time. So it's not like every person was responding, but just by the sheer numbers of it, I could send out 50 emails and get five calls booked for the next week. And each of them could be 30 minutes or even up to an hour. And people were, you know, if they responded, were very gracious, more than happy to chat. And we experimented with a lot of things around, do we give people like an Amazon gift card? Do we not? And I think at the end of the day, honestly, it didn't really make much of a difference in terms of the enthusiasm that someone might have to share their thoughts and ideas. And what it came down to was more structuring the call very clearly, where at the start of the call, every single time we made it very clear, hey, you're not going to offend us or you're not going to hurt our feelings if you share something that you don't like. We want to dig into the parts that are frustrating. We want to hear what you don't enjoy about the experience or what you would do differently or just w- getting a mental picture of what their day-to-day looks like using the product, I think was really, really the key piece of why those calls were valuable. Now, switching gears to something you know where we're at Upstart, uh, at least on the bank partnership side, there's not thousands of banks that we can just uh, call up and, and talk to. And sometimes, as you might imagine, like getting a hold of time from senior leaders is more challenging. But one thing that I found is it's sort of a shift of where you get the the data. It's not so much the sheer volume of calls, but I've been pleasantly surprised that just reaching out to some of these uh, 
just our, I guess our counterparts or leaders at the banks and just saying, Hey, do you have 30 minutes to jump on a phone call and just talking through something with them? Even for someone like me, that's pretty new and recently joined, people are more than happy to do that. So I, I would say that's one thing that it, it never hurts to, to ask. And I think that people are a lot more willing to give time when you have a focused, clear ask, and they know they're not just getting on a call to be pitched or sold something. I've had that in the past where just chatting with other PMs, et cetera, and learned it myself too, is sometimes people are hesitant to explicitly state, hey, this is not a sales call. We're not trying to sell you anything. And I think that's important to do upfront where if you got an email inbound that was sort of outlining just very vaguely what they want to talk about, you might be a little wary. But if someone explicitly says, hey, I'm not here to sell you anything at all. I just want to talk to you about this specific problem and your experience with it. I think people are willing to, to share that. Yeah, I agree. And, and I think that there is a product people are often you know, reticent to um, you know, be sort of that vulnerable and that transparent because, you know, is, is, and there's some you know, fundamental human nature that I think you know, falls into this because it's hard for us as, as, as humans to be vulnerable and, and transparent. And, and also because we are the, the creators of the product that we're working on, in some cases, you know, in a major way, like, like at a startup. And then, you know, as the company gets bigger, you know, in a smaller way, but still you have some ownership as part of the product. And I think that creates some, you know, some defensiveness and some, you know, some biases as part of the process too, that make it hard for us as product people to be vulnerable and, and open with, with users. And to, as you said, sort of, give them the okay to be negative and, and to maybe tell us some things that we don't, that we need to hear, but we don't necessarily want to hear about the product. Yeah, I think you're totally right. And I think there's, there's work to be done on both sides of sort of that customer research call. It's putting the reps in on, you know, the product side as the interviewer to get comfortable to your point of hearing that negative feedback, not leading on with some leading questions and also helping the other person feel comfortable where, just saying, hey, tell me what's wrong with the product is not going to just immediately snap them into a state where they're happy to do that. It's just, to your point, a natural reaction not to talk to the person that created the thing and tell them, hey, I don't like it. And so I think, you know, if it's an hour long call or 30 minutes, spend the first five, 10 minutes just asking broad questions, getting comfortable, knowing them as a person and what their day to day looks like. And I really like taking cues from sort of all the research that's been done around uh, jobs to be done and how those calls are set up where the way they frame it is you're trying to get a mental picture of what their day looks like to the point of detail where you can make a documentary about what they do. And I really like that approach of it where you're sort of more investigative journalists rather than grilling them about their opinions on the product and sort of using that raw data to then come to your own conclusions. Yeah, I love that as well. And I think jobs to be done was a, a transformative approach to to building products and, and uh, interacting with users. And, and yeah, I think if you can come out of a conversation with a user and you can tell their story, then you're, you're well on your way to understanding that user's circumstance and, and their sort of their plight, if you will. Yeah, yeah, I think that's spot on. So you talked a little bit about the fact when, when you did Cap Story that you didn't necessarily know that, that you were now going to be in a product management role and, and sort of being both the product owner and, and product manager, when did that realization hit and, and did you sort of own it at that point when you became consciously aware that you were now sort of fulfilling this, you know, this role 
or was it after the fact? And then looking back, you said, oh, geez, you know, I was doing product at Cap Store, even though we just had to, we just needed to do what we needed to do. And we didn't necessarily know that there was a discipline around it. Yeah, I, I don't think I've met anyone yet that, you know, was in high school or college and said, I want to go be a product manager. Maybe it's happening now, but at least at that time, I don't think I knew anyone and even people who I talked to who are in product today. It's always a very interesting meandering path of sort of landing accidentally into the product space. And it was, yeah, that's the same for me. I think when we were doing capstory work, I didn't know product management as an entity really existed until I started digging into, okay, how do we figure out what we build next? What actually goes on the roadmap? What is a roadmap? And digging into each of those little tactical pieces sort of leads you to reading books that end up covering product management. So essentially it was like all these little entry points that got me to see this bigger picture that I've slowly assembled over time of, okay, here's this little thing that I've uncovered over here. And then this is a thing around customer research over here. Design seems interesting and important here to design user flows. And as that picture kind of came together, I really liked that approach of this jigsaw that uh, got clearer and clearer over time that I'm still working on of what are all the different pieces that lead you to be effectively good at building something that people want, which then becomes product management. So still working on that every day, trying to get better and better about it. And uh, it's been interesting. I think different companies, different products totally change the the weighting, maybe the bias that you might have uh, for which skill set is more important or less important in that context. And that's what's interesting about product is you could talk to or shadow maybe 10 product managers at different companies and what they do day to day would be very, very different. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, and, and I think that's partly because product management is such a sort of Swiss army knife role and it requires so many different skills and interacting with so many other team members in different groups that it's not a role and a discipline that you can say, well, you just have to do this well. You can't even point to three things that you have to do well to be successful in product management. You have to do, you have to do 20 things well. Yeah. Which I think makes it interesting for people from a career perspective because there is that sort of diversity of, of skill set and that diversity of tasks and, and work. But I think the nebulous nature, you know, still and the fact that companies can still approach product in, in very different ways is also, you know, challenging because you can do product in one organization and then go to another organization and, and they might approach it very differently neither of them necessarily being wrong as long as the right outcomes are getting produced, but the journey of product and, and their processes around it can be very different. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. And I, I struggle with that too. When I talk to people who want to sort of get into product management or get their first role in product is, and they ask, okay, what should I do to prepare myself? What should I learn? How should I get ready to apply for these roles? It's really hard to give a clear, concise answer. Um, I don't know if you have something of how you think about that or how you uh, share like, okay, think about this or, or that. But yeah, I, that's something that I find really hard to articulate clearly because it varies so much. Yeah, the only two things that, that I say to people around that, and these are super high level, so they're probably of no value whatsoever. <laughs> I say, you have, to be, you have to be the defender of the product and the user, first of all. So if you like that, if you like sort of defending you know, the, the value of something and you like defending the voice, you know, of somebody, then you might like being in product. 
The other thing that I say is you're the hub, right? So mm-hmm. you are the entity because you're defending the product and you're defending users, you're sort of the hub. Some people look at it as the gatekeeper. That's a more negative connotation than I typically like, but you're the hub that then every decision that's made about the product, you not only have a voice in, but you're probably ultimately, you know, developing the narrative around all of those things. And so those are the two things I say to people. If you like being the hub of some creative endeavor and you want to defend the the sort of the sanctity and the value of, of something, in this case, a product, then you might enjoy it. And then, of course, you know, the list, you know, goes on. But those are the yeah. only two things because, again, product is so different at various companies because the products are also different, right? If you're doing a B2C product versus a B2B product, you're going to have a different approach and different processes. There are going to be some fundamentals that are the same. But, you know, I think that there's enough variety there that it's it, it, it's hard to just say, you know, if you learn how to do these things, you're going to you're going to succeed and you're going to be happy doing it. Right. Yeah. No, I think those two points are great. I don't think they're too high level, especially the latter one. I think that's, I like questions like that, that have get opinionated, visceral, emotional reactions from people. And what I mean is if you ask someone that, I think most people would have a clear opinion on whether they enjoy being in, you know, a dozen different conversations with different parts of the company and having to juggle that in their heads or whether they don't like that at all. And they would rather go heads down and stay focused and just go deep in just one thing. And I think those questions like that are, are great to help people reflect on that and decide, is this something that is interesting to me or do I want to work on a different part of the product team or, or you know, somewhere else? Yeah. So that's a good segue in, into my next question. Although there are fundamentals around you know, product as a, as a discipline, whether you're you know, working on a new product at a startup, a fast growing product and, and company or at a, at a more mature uh, company and product, there are differences too, because, you know, a startup has a product where it's mostly about creation and validation, right? Is Mm -hmm. this a problem in a way that people care about at a fast growing? It's okay. How do we keep evolving the product really, really quickly based upon what we're seeing and what, what user feedback we're getting without creating a lot of, you know, debt around the product, you know, technical and, and product debt. And then, uh, at more mature places, it's okay, we've got a pretty successful mature product that we're trying to now get sort of incremental improvement and evolution around. And that could be reducing user friction. It could be, you know, driving more user value by making, you know, some features slightly easier to use. Um, and of course, you know, adding, you know, features as, as you know, the product's um, lifespan continues. Mm-hmm. Has that been your experience? And how do you sort of see products at different sort of stages of product and company evolution. I sort of agree with that. I think I might see it maybe slightly differently, but uh, it could get to sort of the same thing that you're saying. I think you're spot on that, like at the early stage, you're sort of making these massive bets on, I think we should do this. And that might change week to week, where when you're a team of one, five, 10 people, you really can do that where, you know, what you did last month to this month could be completely different, where you may have literally thrown out the product that you built and built something brand new that doesn't look anything like the last one and just solves a different problem. I think that's okay. I think companies do that at the early stage to just figure out what resonates with people and you're going to be wildly wrong and you're just going to be zigzagging until you get to something that has some promise and then you get to that iterative stage. I think even at sort of further along once you've seen some success, it 
it is important to still have some proportion of that where you're trying brand new wild ideas for what the product will be. I think getting stuck in that iterative mindset becomes easier almost where the early days you don't have any data flowing in through the pipes. You don't have existing customers. So there really is nothing to mildly iterate on where the danger becomes later on where you might look at, you know, having a lot of customers, a lot of success. And then there's just, you could drown in the data. You could look at all the different data points that are coming in. You could design experiments on how to move a number by one or 5%. And some of that work is important depending on what the objective is in the short, medium term. But I don't think you can ever really lose that concept of, okay, what's, what's next? What do we build that's wildly different? I'm working on a, a product right now here at Upstart where we'll see if it pans out. We'll see if it works, but we're at least trying something that's going to be wildly new and different. And I like being able to do that alongside, you know, the, the typical stuff that you mentioned of iterating on things. So I think it's always important to have that iterative work and the longer sort of moonshots or maybe loon shots that, that you have in progress, but just the proportion of time you spend on each one might be different at different stages. Is one stage more challenging than another or, or are they all of equal challenge because building successful products and, and having a, a product remain successful is ridiculously hard, irrespective of stage? I think one stage is more challenging for me. And I think different people might have different answers to it. So for me, I think the iterating and uh, refining is harder for me. I think I've done less of that in just my experience and career. So even at Buffer, when we had the, the product I was a PM on, um, Buffer Publish was sort of at that point of established, et cetera. But the parts of that uh, product that I enjoyed working on the most were our brand new features that we were spinning up. Go talk to customers about, here's a new thing we want to add in. How do we get it from non-existent to existent and get some customers initially successful with it? And then I leaned on my team to help me with the, the iterative bits. So we had awesome data scientists, designers, et cetera. And I think that's, the really awesome part about a product team is there's going to be parts that you, the PM or, you know, me that I'm just not get great at and maybe don't really care to get better at because I want to focus somewhere else. But if you have a team that is good at those other bits, you can all sort of work together to get that end result and find that sort of medium balance between, okay, some things you don't really need to be amazing at everything and you can just focus where, where you can have the most value and let someone else on your team that enjoys that work and is really good at it sort of shore up that, that weakness. Yeah, that makes sense. And that dovetails a little bit into this next question of how can product teams and, and companies as they're making these transitions do it, you know, as, as smoothly as possible. So, you know, a company that, that is, you know, has had a hundred users on the product and is growing and now has 500 users and then, you know, is moving to a thousand. How does a company do that smoothly and efficiently without you know, users being, you know, sort of damaged in the process and the relationship, you know, with users being damaged and, and the company, you know, doing it in a way that at least to the outside, right, to users seems, you know, fairly logical and, and seems, you know, fairly, fairly fluid, you know, when those transitions, especially at those early stages from no users to 10 to 100 to 500, can mean very, you know, significant, impactful things on the inside from a product perspective. Yeah, yeah, I think that's definitely really hard and it goes to partly product, but also just like management in general of, of an organization as it grows. I'd say earlier, sort of in my career, I would approach that by 
finding the right tool for the next stage, sort of over-engineering the process, getting the most robust uh, system in place, make sure there's defined things around how things are documented and all that. I've kind of grown to think of that as almost overkill, where regardless of how much you prepare for some of those changes and growth, you're not going to get it right. And it's going to be hard to do all that and hard to maintain that sense of everything is under control as you grow. There's just too much that changes and too much to do. So I guess the end of the spectrum that I've landed on is more on controlled chaos, where just embracing the fact that things are going to grow and change wildly, and you're going to sometimes feel like things are getting a little bit out of control. And it's just this balancing act of leaning on your team and making sure that everyone is sharing any problems that they have, and you're sort of working through those as they come up, rather than try to prevent every possible edge case or, or challenge. And maybe something to make that concrete could be around documentation. It's one thing that you know we all try to document everything. It's it's nice to have in theory, but in practice, it's really hard when, to your point, in an example of a startup maybe going from their first 100 users to the first 1,000 users, or even the team growing from 10 to 50, it's just not going to happen where everyone is able to document every piece of what they do for the new team members that come on. So there's going to be sort of that mild stage of, okay, where do I find this information? Who do I talk to? And I think shoring up the key pieces of what comes up there as it comes up is probably the better, better approach that rather than trying to engineer everything beforehand. And a key piece to doing that well is transparency. And I would say that's important both internally in the company, but also to your customers where customers working with you sort of have an idea of the size of the company you are and what you do and who the people are as you get to interact with them. So trying to project this idea that you're maybe like a Fortune 50 company and have all of these processes put together and everything shored up is just not the right approach, I think, if you are an earlier stage startup. I think it's important to just be transparent and open and say, hey, here's the things we're working on. Here's the roadmap that we're looking at. Here's what we're thinking about building and really treating them as sort of a partner in that process rather than trying to put this front up or this wall in between you and them as, hey, we are the, the company that has everything together and we're just here to give you this perfect solution. Yeah, as I agree with you. As a product matures, the product team also has to mature. And I guess this is a kind of a two-part question in that, how do you assess whether a product team is maturing at the same pace as the product so that the product team can continue to be effective uh, as the product matures? And do you think that there are product, there are product managers and product people that align better with different stages of product? So as a product matures and it, and it goes into a phase like we were talking about earlier where there, it's becoming, you know, a little bit more incremental and it's not, you know, quite, you know, swinging for the fences as much. Are there some product people that are more wired to be sort of, you know, early product creators and swing for the fence people and there are more people that are comfortable, you know, with incrementality? I definitely think so. I think there, most product managers that I've met have sort of a, a desire to be doing one thing or the other. Obviously, most product managers do sort of some combination of both. But I do think that, at least speaking for myself and the people that I've talked to, I think people have a preference of which end of that spectrum they'd like to be on. Maybe one way to think about it is sort of like, a, I guess, a two-by-two two grid where there's sort of the, the y-axis of things you like doing, and then on the other end, things you dislike. And the other axis could be things you're really good at and things you're not so good at. And so if, you're, if you find that you're just naturally good at the initial investigating the ambiguity of... We have no idea what this feature should be or what this should look like. And I like doing that work. I like the ambiguity and I like figuring that out, even in lack of 
good data, good uh, sort of processes already established. I think most PMs probably have a preference for whether they either like doing that work or would like to learn how to do that work. And so that sort of results in sort of having better fits at different stages or different companies for who might be a better PM in that in that situation. And um, I guess your first part of that question of like how a product team matures, I'm not sure I have like one clear answer on that or a perspective, but I think it's a similar discussion to how people think about founders of companies where someone founded a company, it grows wildly, do you replace them with uh, a CEO that's more established? So it's like this ever ongoing back and forth. And I think there's been successful examples of both scenarios where there's companies have gone from scratch all the way through being public. And it's still that original founder that just leveled up and grew. And it probably comes down to a function of that person wanting to do completely different things at the later stage and being good at doing those things. Or if they don't enjoy doing that, if they don't want to transition to that, then they're probably not a great fit. I think High Growth Handbook is a, a book that I read a little while ago that outlined that really well and paints a very tactical picture of what the day-to-day looks like as a company grows and a product team grows. I think the same could be said for for uh, a product manager on, on a product. As that team grows, maybe certain PMs would want to transition off of that product into something that's more greenfield, something that's more brand new to get back to that earlier stage excitement. So probably important to ask yourself that as the product grows and say, am I still enjoying this work? Is it still the work I want to do day to day? Because it can grow and can change and be wildly different. How have you evolved and, and sort of dealt with you know, the transitions that have happened for you? I mean, you went from you know, cap story and the product being yours, right? Being, being you, being representative, yeah. what you guys wanted to put out and, and how you saw the problem and how you wanted to solve it. And then, you know, into larger, you know, larger teams, what have you sort of learned about yourself and how have you evolved that through that process? Yeah, I think the biggest changes sort of through that arc sort of neatly lines up where at Capstory we had, you know, five, six people that we were working with directly and we could sort of decide uh, the direction like you mentioned. Buffer was a team of about 80, 90 people and here at Upstart we're like 350 plus 400 people overall across two offices. So it's sort of this neat arc of of ever larger companies, but also from my perspective at least increasing complexity in the product that we ship. Buffer was sort of a B2B small business targeted product where we had a lot of flexibility and freedom in just creating whatever new features we could think through. And I'm sorry, there's a lot more stakeholders involved, both on the banking side, from our own perspectives, regulators, and that increasing complexity has been all brand new to me. Hadn't really worked in that sort of environment. And I think the, the things that I've learned about myself is I knew coming into this role that there would be a different level of skill sets that I would get to learn, namely around planning across such a broad team and what that looks like. I feel like I'm already learning a ton about what what that is and sort of the the framework that you have to think about planning ahead, where, for example, at Buffer, I essentially could work on a roadmap with just our CEO, me, and my media team. We sort of put it together. We could adapt that very quickly and change that rapidly. And now there's definitely a lot more stakeholders involved. So we're planning a little further out just because you need to give legal compliance, regulators, bank partners, et cetera, a heads up and get their voice involved in how you plan that roadmap out. And that's just a skill set that I ha- didn't have before. And watching other people do it here has been really great to understand. How do you do this effectively without feeling like you're slowing down? And I think back when I sort of started in product, maybe when I was doing capstory work, I would think about large organizations and, and look at how they they moved and 
looked at why can't they move faster? Why aren't they iterating more quickly? And I think the reality once you get there is there's a good reason that you don't really want to iterate in a very, very rapid way when you're doing something like banking. People don't want their money to be agile and changing around and moving. And I think there's a a really strong cultural bias that you need to have around speed to even with all those stakeholders involved to still move quickly. And that's one of the things that drew me to Upstart is the value of speed as a habit is something that I want to be around where just because the organization's growing and getting larger and larger doesn't mean that how quickly we move internally has to be slowed down. Yeah, I want to ask you about two more things, one of which is related to, to what you were just discussing, which is I've never been a huge fan of the mantra, move fast and break things. Uh, yeah. I'm a huge fan of moving quickly and operating you know, with intentional speed. And I know that, you know, the team at Upstart, you know, that's one of sort of the core values is, is, you know, moving quickly and, and speed, not just inside of, of product, but just sort of having um, a sense of urgency, I guess, you know, just sort of culturally. Yeah. How do you think about mantras such as, you know, move fast and break things? Do you like that sort of stuff or does that stuff make you cringe? Uh, I think the break things part I'm with you makes me cringe in the sense of it shouldn't really be a goal for you to try to do that. I think that's a, a poor way to measure that you're moving quickly is to say, oh, if things are breaking, falling apart, you're moving fast enough. So I'm with you there. I do like the idea of mantras in the sense of guiding principles, whatever you really want to call them, values, et cetera. It's one thing to just like put it together and stick it on a wall. It's another thing to actually say, okay, what uh, I think a good way to measure whether you're actually doing it is what are we trading off against for this? What are we giving up um, and sacrificing essentially because we believe so much in this thing? And so in the Buffer example, I think one of the core values of, of Buffer is just transparency. And I think at the start of when they decided that was a value, one of the trade-offs was they made everything transparent, their financials, salaries, like a lot of the internal discussions, challenges. And there's real risk in doing that where you're essentially showing your competitors, here's how we're doing, here's our business metrics, here's what we're learning from the market. So that's a good way to measure that you're actually living that value is you're giving something up or potentially risking something because you believe in it so much. And I think on the upstart side, it's one thing to just say, hey, we move quickly. I don't think any company would say we pride ourselves on moving slowly. But the, the practical day-to-day is really where that shows up. And that doesn't come from putting something on a wall, putting something that you just say, here's a value. I think it's just small little things, iterative every single day, where from the first day that I jumped in, it was, hey, we're doing this call with this with this bank. Do you want to just jump on that call and maybe talk about this small sliver here? And I had no idea what I was talking about or doing, but I learned as much as I could quickly, jumped in, and then knew that I had the support of you know the other teammates if there's other follow-up questions or, or whatnot. And that's a great example, I think, of living that ability to, to move quickly. So broadly, I think it is important for companies to be opinionated, have, you know, as you mentioned, mantras or values that they feel strongly about, both to select for who they hire for, but also just to decide what is this going to feel like working here day to day? What is the experience of being at this company going to be like? Yep. So at the time that, that we're uh, recording this, um, we're in the midst of the you know, COVID-19 tumult. You, yes. you were, I'm pretty sure while you were Buffer, you worked remote, right? Because isn't, right. isn't most of the Buffer team remote? Yeah, it's the entire company's remote, actually. Um, I think they closed off the, the office maybe in 2015, 2016. And it's about 90 people totally remote um, all over the world, actually. So distributed and remote. 
So the remote thing is not is not new for you as, as it is for for many people. But how do you think, especially for those you know product teams and organizations that haven't historically been remote and virtual, what kind of an adaptation is that for them to go from being you know in the, physically together, sort of you know cranking on product and making decisions to doing it virtually and remotely? Is there a big difference, you know, in your mind? And is that a, a big sort of work operational shift? Or is that something that if they've got if they've if they've got good fundamental principles in place and processes in place th- that whether they're doing it, you know, all in the same room together or they're doing it virtually has or should have very little impact? I think you definitely need to make changes. I think even if there's teams that function really well together in person, have the fundamentals down. I think just assuming that that'll translate to a remote environment just doesn't get the most out of how you can work remotely. I'd say a few things that are really important to like consciously work on and change, iterate, improve. One is going back to sort of documentation and how you communicate information. In the office, it's really easy to just either overhear as people are talking about stuff when you're sitting with your product team or see someone go and talk about uh, a meeting or do a whiteboard and just follow up with them, ask them a follow-on question or just ping them on the shoulder and and ask them something immediate. And I think we probably underestimate how much context day-to-day gets shared in that informal manner. When you go remote, you lose a lot of that. Obviously, a lot of that just falls away. And so I think it becomes even more important to have something that is consciously decided where maybe it's at the end of every day, you do your daily sort of notes in Slack and just have a quick thread of, here's what I was working on, here's what I was thinking about, here's where I'm blocked. That could be a stand-up on Zoom, depending on how broadly the team is spread out. But that's something that probably needs to be thought through and say, okay, how do we actually transition to make sure we don't lose that context? And the other piece is just the informal bits. We're all still people that enjoy working together, want to maintain that human connection. And I think that can fall away pretty quickly when you're remote if you don't actively work to, to counter it. So I think Buffer obviously being remote for years, the people team there did a lot of work thinking through how do you maintain that sense of connectivity across a broad group of people when you're fully remote. And it could be little things like using emojis in Slack to communicate uh, emotion. It could be uh, more structured things like having, you know, a happy hour or like an hour where you're chatting on Zoom and not everything translates directly to to a virtual setting. So it could look like instead of just jumping on and chatting about whatever, maybe having someone present a topic for five or 10 minutes and then having a discussion around that. I think teams should get creative around how they think about that and not just assume, oh, it'll fall into place and, and we'll figure it as we go. It's a it's a big opportunity, I think, for teams to expose sort of areas where they were maybe lacking in whether it's documentation or cohesion as a team, shore that up while remote. And then when we're back in the office, that'll make us uh, all that much better. Yep. Gotcha. Thanks for that. Yeah. Super. Any final any final thoughts that you'd want to impart to uh, folks out there listening who are currently working on products or those that are thinking about getting into product management and, and this uh thing that we now know to call product as sort of a discipline and a practice that, you know, for, you know, those who are as old as I am, which is pretty old at this point, <laughs> who've been, you know, doing product for a long time, we just, you know, we just didn't know what to call it or necessarily that it needed to be called something. Yeah. How do you sort of think about, you know, setting the stage for people as they're uh, thinking about this discipline we now call product? I'd say maybe a couple really broad things is uh, first is just ask for what you need. I think that's something that I've tried to learn over time. I learned it the hard way many times, but 
if you want feedback or advice on something, just ask your teammates. If you need to understand something in the industry, go reach out to someone random on LinkedIn and ask them. And I, it's shocking how often people just reply and say, sure, I'll give you an entire hour of my time, even though I'm super busy, just to talk you through this thing. And early on in sort of like product or career, whatever you want to call it, I was very hesitant to do that. I don't know why. I just didn't really reach out randomly to people. And I would go try to figure it out myself, go read a bunch of books or read online. And that transition has been just awesome because many times it's the unknown unknowns where you wouldn't even know to ask the question to figure it out that come up in those conversations where they'll mention something that I hadn't even thought about or thought existed. And then I can go follow up on that lead, um, whether that's on the customer research side or trying to understand why something might be a problem for someone. So yeah, just asking for what you need, I think is a, a really key skill, whether it's in product or just more broadly. And the other thing is for people who I hear from a lot of people who are thinking about like, how do I get into product? Um, and I think it's a frustrating answer to give where there's not really one good clean answer, but just get started doing something. Whether if you're an engineer, building some product that you can and putting a blog post out there of how you thought about it. If you're not an engineer, designing something that you can in Sketch or Photoshop. And if you're not a designer, doing customer interviews, talking to people and learning how that works. The hard thing about product is that it's such a broad discipline, but the nice thing is there's many entry points. There is no one right way to go about it. And you can sort of come at it from any area that you have a skill set in or that you have an interest in. I think that's what's really exciting about it. So just getting started in some way, whatever that is, I think is the best way to sort of start the journey towards you know being in product. Yeah, I think that's great advice. Well, super good chatting with you. Good to hear your voice and to know that uh, things are well with you during these, you know, these, these crazy times. Thanks for taking a few minutes to uh, uh, talk about product and, and your journey through product. I appreciate it very much. Yeah, likewise, Ryan. Good talking to you. Yeah, stay safe out there as everyone's signing off on their emails now. But uh, yeah, good to chat with you. This is Ryan Frederick from AWH, and this has been Beyond the Roadmap, a podcast about building products. And I appreciate Super for joining me today, and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks very much. Need some help with product? AWH is a digital product consulting, user experience, and software development firm here to help you create great digital products. Check out www.awh.net or follow us on Twitter at AWHNet to learn more.